This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This week our theme is Growing in Christ. We want to grow. We don't want to be stagnant people who are always the same, never making any progress. Jesus has pour new life into our hearts and life, wherever there's life, there is inevitably growth. And if the Holy Spirit is at work in your heart, in your life, there's going to be growth that's pushing its way towards the surface. So this week we're going to be covering a number of texts from the New Testament, listening to what God is saying in his word and teaching us and equipping us. And I want to start today, tonight, by um, a short passage from the second letter of Peter. And tonight we're just going to cover the first four verses of this letter. About a year or so ago, we did a sermon series through the first uh, letter of Peter, and this is the first chapter of the second letter. So let's listen to the word of God. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours, grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these, He has given us His very great and precious promises so that through them, you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. And that's all we'll read for today. So I want to make a number of points, and if you have some pen and paper or phone, you can take some notes so you have something to take away from you, take away with you. My first point today and for this week is that God has already given all of us everything we need for a godly life. God has already given you everything you need to please God and to be holy and to be fruitful and to grow. God has already given that to you according to Peter in verse 3. You know, in in very poor communities, people who've grown up in poverty without any money and resources, there tends to be this scarcity mentality. You're always aware of what you don't have, of what you lack, and you make decisions out of a mentality of poverty. Even if you have physically escaped the ghetto and you're in a good situation and you have a good income, there are certain ways of thinking that get drilled into you when you grow up as a poor person that are hard to escape when you have plenty. And I think a lot of Christians operate out of a scarcity mentality. We live as poor people, even though God has blessed us so much in Jesus, and we become aware of what we believe that we lack and of what we think that God hasn't given us, and we feel weak, we feel crippled, we feel defeated, and we feel like we're unable to grow. And we might even, as we've struggled with our sin that keeps on defeating us, at our inability to have victory, at 
what seems like the lack of growth over months and over years, we still seem to be in the same place. We've prayed about it, we've sought God, and we might feel like, like God is being cruel and he's withholding something from us and he's refusing to give us what we need to grow. And we look around us and we see amazing Christians who are serving God and are full of love and they just seem to go from strength to strength and we feel like we're stuck in the same place. And we have this poverty mentality and this feeling like God has withheld something from us. And perhaps you've then encountered Christians who've told you, oh no, there's, there's a kind of second blessing that God has for you. When you became a Christian, you only got the basic package. You only got the bare essentials. But there is the luxury package that gives you everything and more that you need. And your problem is that you only received God's initial gift, which is so bare and so basic. And if you follow this procedure, if you pray this prayer, if you surrender yourself in this way, if you receive this spiritual gift, that will be the doorway to unlimited growth, victory, and fruitfulness. And there are different, you know, kind of strands of this second blessing teaching. But according to Peter, God's divine power has given us everything already that we need for life and godliness, for a godly life. At the beginning of his letter, Peter says, hey, you guys have received a faith as precious as ours. Peter is an apostle. Jesus commissioned Peter to be the rock on which he would build his church. If anyone you'd think would be at the spiritual height, it would be Peter. And he says, you know what, you guys, you ordinary Christians, you actually are at the same spiritual level as I am because we have all received everything when we first believed. He wishes them grace and peace. He blesses them with grace and peace in abundance, he says in verse 2. Not the bare minimum you need to survive and just barely get by all thin and malnourished. God has given us grace and peace in abundance, he's poured out blessing upon us. Our spiritual life is through the power of God. And you only realize how strong sin is in your heart when you begin to fight it. When you're just surrendering to your sinful desires and you're giving into it and you're just going along with the flow, you don't realize how strong the pool, of, the pool of those evil desires and lusts are. But the moment you begin to resist, the moment you try to say no, the moment you say, I'm going to obey Jesus instead, you find in yourself is a strong and ferocious resistance to the will of God. And you will discover that you don't have the power to overcome those sinful cravings. In fact, Paul talks about us being under the dominion of sin and under the slavery and captivity of this foreign power that dominates us and abuses us 
and controls us. And human beings, we simply do not have the willpower to escape, to escape those desires. But Peter says that God's divine power has broken into our lives. Every single Christian here has had a momentous, supernatural encounter with the power of God. In Ezekiel chapter 37, the prophet has this vision of a valley full of dry bones and God commands him to prophesy to those bones. And after arguing with God, he prophesies and those bones, they all come together with their muscles and sinews and then God breathes life and this whole army rises out of the dust. And that's exactly what Jesus has done by the spirit of his resurrection, the very spirit that rose Jesus, by which Jesus rose from the dead, by which God created the world, has been at work in all our lives, making us a new creation. And Peter is saying that through God's divine, unlimited, supernatural power, provision has been made for you to live a godly life. Jesus doesn't save you from your sin and its condemnation and punishment, but leave you on your own to deal with your struggles yourself. Everything has been given to you through the power of God. You know, in the book of Exodus, you might remember that when Moses and Aaron first confront Pharaoh, he says to the Israelites, from now on, you're going to make bricks without straw. He's a terrible taskmaster who's demanding from the people what they can't give that is far beyond their strength. And I feel like a lot of Christians think that God is commanding them to make bricks without straw. Like God's just saying, be perfect as I am perfect. You need to be totally holy and pure and sinless, but that's your problem. And I'm going to sit here and wait in heaven with my arms crossed until you finally show up and then I'm going to judge you and condemn you for all the ways that you failed. God is not like Pharaoh. And God doesn't demand that we make bricks without straw. God's power has given us everything we need for godliness. And I wonder, I wonder how this would change how we pray. How we pray in regards to growing in character, in godliness, in grace. And maybe, instead of praying for some new blessing or some new deliverance or some new encounter or experience, we really need to be praying, God, show me what is already mine through the gospel. Because God's, he's already given it to you. It's there. You just have to open it up and receive it and take it and apply it in your life. Now, let's make this a little more concrete and a little more helpful. Peter says that we experience this power through knowing Christ. Look again what he says in verse 3. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. This power, the channel of this power, the pipeline, the way that we actually experience God's 
world-creating, resurrecting-making power is through the knowledge of Jesus. Through the knowledge of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who had called Peter by the Sea of Galilee to follow him and has called all us disciples to follow him. Think about all the treasures of the grace of God. The many, many different blessings that God wants to give his children. Justification and sanctification and freedom and liberty and truth and power and new life. There's a long, long list of blessings. Is there a single one of those blessings that is outside of Jesus? None of them are. Every single blessing that God has is within Jesus. All the fullness of God dwells in Christ. And in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says, he, he praises God and he worships him for every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. Every spiritual blessing has been put into Jesus. God has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And when you first came to Jesus, when you first repented and put your faith in him, how much of Jesus did you receive? What percentage of Christ was given to you at that moment? Any takers? How much of Christ has God given you? Not a trick question. He's given us all of Jesus, right? He hasn't sliced off a bit of Jesus and given you a certain percentage. Here's like 10%. I'm not too sure about you. You've made these promises. You've made these commitments. But we'll see how you do. So I'm going to give you a certain percentage of Jesus. And then every month, based on good behavior, I will give you a small little bit more until you receive the full deposit. Of course not. Jesus is not divided into pieces. When we come to Christ, he gives all of himself to us. We possess all of Jesus. And within Christ is every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So the person who's been a Christian for five minutes possesses just as much blessing and just as much as, of Jesus as the person who's been faithfully following him for 75 years. We have it all in Christ. Because we don't just receive Jesus when we believe. We're actually united by faith to Christ. We become one with him. We're fused with him. Being in Christ is the most common description of a Christian in the New Testament. Who are you? You are a person who is in Christ. That is your new identity. That's your new reality. That's your new sphere of being. So that Paul says, it's no longer even I who live. It's Christ who lives within me. He who believes in Jesus becomes one spirit with him. So it's not like this grace and this peace and this power somehow get transferred out of Jesus' account and put into your account over here. None of it ever actually leaves Jesus. We don't take it out of him. 
It's because we are in him and we belong to him and we're with him and we're united with him that in Jesus, all of this, all of these treasures are ours. Through knowing Jesus. John 17, in Jesus' high priestly prayer before he's crucified, he says, Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Notice that eternal life is not something we get through knowing God, but there is an equal sign between them, right? Eternal life is defined as knowing God. If you know God, and if you know His Son, Jesus Christ, you are already experiencing eternal life. You realize, don't you, eternal life does not begin when you die or at the resurrection of the dead. You have already begun living this eternal life the moment you encounter God in a saving relationship through Jesus. Eternal life isn't something we get from Jesus. It's not something that is taken out of him and given as a gift to you. Eternal life is knowing Jesus himself. Jesus doesn't just give us access to the Garden of Eden. Jesus himself is the tree of life. And all of what it means to be a Christian can be summed up in knowing Christ. Knowing Christ in deep personal relationship. Because knowing in the Bible, of course, is a lot more than intellectual knowledge. Of course, our minds are involved. You can't know anyone without using your mental faculties, of course. God doesn't want you to check your brain at the door. He wants you to love him with all of your mind, but also with all of your heart and your soul and your might and your strength. And your whole being is involved in knowing God. There's a huge difference, isn't there, between knowledge in a personal relationship when you're face-to-face with another person compared with knowledge of some dead and inanimate thing that you can dissect and analyze and hold at arm's length and have an objective, detached knowledge. Knowledge of God is not that kind of knowledge. Knowledge of God is a deep, personal, face-to-face encounter where I realize there is someone else out there who wants to know me and who wants to encounter me. That's why in the Old Testament, to know someone is used as a euphemism for a sexual relationship between a husband and wife. Adam goes in and he knows his wife Eve and they conceive and they have a son. It's the closest possible relationship. And so when Paul says in Philippians, I count all things as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, he's not talking about a collection of data about Christ, about his height and his weight and certain important dates in his life and relevant facts that are very easy to collect in a church environment and reading your Bible. And you can confuse that collection of data and facts about Jesus 
with personal knowledge of Jesus. They're not the same thing. Of course, there are facts and truths that we need to know about Jesus, but he wants us to encounter him in a relationship so deep, so intense, so joy-giving that people like Paul are willing to surrender everything so that they might know Jesus more and the power of his resurrection. Knowledge, Doug Moo says, refers to an intimate and informed relationship. We're not putting our brains and our hearts in competition with each other, forcing you to choose one over the other. We want to know Jesus with our whole being. And so I think from what Peter is saying, we can, we can deduce this truth. That your spiritual growth will be in direct proportion to your intimacy with Jesus. There's a one-to-one relationship between those two things. How well you know Jesus, how closely you walk with him, how deep your relationship with him is, and how your character is growing and how your holiness is thriving. Those two things are directly related to each other. And I think the reverse is also true. That spiritual decay and backsliding is in direct proportion to neglecting your relationship with Jesus. So that's true. Um, What happens when we try to have spiritual growth without intimacy with Jesus? What happens when you ignore seeking his face and you just focus on correcting faults and overcoming sin and trying to put into practice the commands of God? Something we're all tempted to do often in our walk. What happens? Sorry? We get tired and weary, don't we? Yeah, we start to wonder, what's even the point? What's the point of this? It just feels like toil and drudgery and you know, trying to do our 16,000 steps every day without any real purpose behind it, right? We get disconnected from why we're even trying to obey God. And then obedience and the law start to become an end in themselves, don't they? Anyone else want to add to what Subin said? Yeah. Right. We're just trying to power along on our own determination and, and willpower, yeah. And then we burn out, we forget why we're doing it, and then there's, you know, we go back to those things, don't we? Spiritual growth is in direct proportion to our intimacy with Jesus. And if we try to grow without cultivating our relationship with Jesus... We're going to experience failure, burnout. We're going to turn into probably proud, legalistic people 
who forget the gospel of grace that once seemed so freeing and so exciting and we're going to become harsh and cold worshipers of the law instead of worshipers of Jesus. So, as we begin this week, thinking about spiritual growth, looking into Scripture, I want us to have, as the foundation of that, knowing Jesus more. Otherwise, it's going to become something twisted and full of death. Knowing Jesus, that's a life of praying to Jesus, worshiping Jesus, looking for him in Scripture, seeking to grow, first of all, in trusting, loving, and hoping in Christ. And this is why when, whenever I preach through Scripture on Sunday... I always have, as my last point, I try to answer this question. And you might have observed this pattern if you've been listening carefully. And this is a question suggested by Tim Keller. The question is, how does this passage point to Jesus? And how does Jesus' salvation help me to change in the way that the passage is asking of me? So when we were going through the book of 1 Samuel, those 31 chapters all about Samuel and Saul and David, every time, as Jesus taught those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, it all points to Jesus. Because if we're reading Scripture and not encountering Jesus when we read Scripture, we're missing the point of what it's saying. If we're reading even the commands and instructions of God, the very practical things that God wants us to do in Scripture, and we are missing out on how those things point to Jesus and how Jesus and His grace and His presence have been given to us to be transformed in that way, we're missing the point of what it is saying. We're trying to live by the dead letter of the law instead of the living Spirit of Jesus. It all comes through knowing Jesus. God's divine power for a godly life only comes through knowing Jesus Christ. And the more you know Jesus, the more you will be growing. Now, Peter says something quite profound in verse 4. Which is amazing, because Paul was a super-educated guy. He had the equivalent of multiple PhDs. Peter was just this rugged fisherman with, you know, calloused fingers. But he'd been taught by Jesus. He knew Jesus. And he says in verse 4, Through these, Jesus has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them, you may participate, you may participate in the divine nature having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. What did God save us for? I think um, Protestant, as Protestant Christians, we're pretty clear on what Jesus saved us from. 
right? What did Jesus save us from? Hell, death, sin, condemnation, right? Where we're on the negative side, what Jesus rescued us from. But we tend to be very vague on what Jesus saved us for. And so we know all the things that we've escaped from, but what's left is just this blank, blurry nothingness, right? And you can only go so far on escaping from bad things. Jesus didn't just save us from, he saved us, more importantly, for. And what Jesus has saved us for, the very highest thing according to Peter, is participating in the divine nature. Which is one of those phrases, when you read the Bible, you can kind of glide right over it and not realize how shocking that phrase really is. To participate in God's own nature. And this has been described using different terms, not divination, divinization, I should have spelt that, or deification or theosis, experiencing, participating, having fellowship in the nature of God. Peter is not just talking here about imitating God's character or reflecting who God is. He's saying actually something quite a bit deeper than that, which is actually experiencing the very life of God within us. Or even better, being pulled into the life of God ourselves. We're this tiny thing pulled into the ocean of the very being of God. And this is something that early Christian writers talked about quite a bit in the first three, four, five hundred years after Christ. This is St. Athanasius, one of the greatest theologians of the early church. He was a great defender of the divinity of Jesus against the heretics who denied that. And in this famous book on the Incarnation, he has this statement, that Christ became man, that we might become God. Now probably that is sounding very weird to you and perhaps quite dangerous and heretical, and it sounds a lot like New Age stuff or Eastern religions, let me clarify what St. Athanasius is saying. He's, he's talking about sharing in the life of God as much as it is possible for a created being to do so. When he says we become God, he doesn't mean that we sees being creatures and we somehow become the creator ourselves. We remain creatures. That boundary is always there. We don't become God in that way. Nor do we, nor is our individual personhood somehow swallowed up into God like pouring um, a cup of water into the ocean. We don't lose our individuality. You might remember I talked about this months ago in Second Corinthians. These early writers used the illustration of a sword being held into the fire. And as the sword is held into the fire, it begins to take on the properties 
a fire. It starts to glow red and it becomes extremely hot. And it takes on all the properties of fire, but it still remains a sword. Now imagine yourself as that sword being plunged into the very heart of God, right into God's own nature, and you take on God's own properties. His holiness, His glory, His immortality, His love, all those things become yours. You have all the properties of the fire, yet you remain yourself. You're still somehow distinct from the fire, yet completely absorbed and enveloped within the fire. And in the early church, again and again, they speak of this experience as the ultimate goal of salvation, of becoming God. They quote Psalm 84, I think, where God says, you know, have I not called you all gods? Jesus quotes this in the Gospel of John, gods with a lowercase g. Human beings become transformed and elevated and carried far beyond our original created experience to have the closest possible relationship with God as it is possible for human beings to have. And that is the destiny of every single one of us who have put our faith in Jesus. So, whatever crap you're struggling with in your own life, whatever sins that you're wrestling with and feeling discouraged by, yes, we have to deal with that stuff, of course, and the Holy Spirit is going to help us. But we need to have our eyes fixed on the glorious future that God has for us. Radiant and glowing with the power and the holiness and the life of God himself. That is what God has promised us. And if you are in Christ, if you've been made one with him, if you've been baptized into his death and into his resurrection, if you have been given his Holy Spirit as a down payment of the inheritance, this is what God is promising you. This is why we fight. This is why we do the painful work of putting the flesh to death and crucifying our desires and saying no to stuff that we really, really want to do. We want to experience this destiny of becoming one with our Creator. And that involves escaping our corrupt and evil desires. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises. I think Peter's speaking here of the Old Testament promises where God said, I'm going to make a new covenant. I'm going to put my spirit in your hearts. I'm going to write my law on your hearts. It's not just going to be an external set of commands that you're left to deal with on your own. It's going to be inscribed at the center of your being so you can obey with new life from the inside. God has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through these promises, you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. When I was in elementary school, I would take a backpack with me every day to school, 
on the bus and my mom would put my lunch in there and my thermos of milk and I had my books in there. And I didn't... Things ended up at the bottom of that bag that I did not see again until the very end of the year in June, summer holidays, and I'd come home and I'd tilt that backpack upside down and dump everything on the carpet. And I would find sandwiches from October that I'd put in there that had been long forgotten. And inside the little Ziploc bag, I'm not sure if it was moving, but there were blue and green fuzzy things on there and there was corruption and decay and a whole biological process that was going on inside that sandwich. (laughs) And this is happening, this process of corruption, the process of decay and death and things breaking down, is happening in the hearts of people in the world because they're trying to live cut off from the source of life who is God himself. Yeah? And this corruption of death, Peter says, this corruption in the world, people apart from God, it has its root in evil desires. All this stuff we're going to talk about this week goes back to deep desires in our hearts. Out of the heart, all this evil stuff comes, Jesus says, right? What we say, what we do is just an expression of desires, longings, cravings, loves deep in our hearts, either evil ones or good ones. And all this corruption, this death, has its root in evil desires. Strong cravings in our heart for autonomy, for life without God, having control and power over my reality, trying to live like God himself. It's evil rebellion against our Creator. And yes, we have the Holy Spirit in our hearts as Christians, but... We all experience, don't we, this force of sin within us, these evil desires. And it's actually quite frightening to think about it, that within us, within all of us, we have this spiritual principle that is seeking to cut us off from God and destroy us. Those desires and temptations which, like Satan himself, hold out the promises of good and amazing experiences, are trying to kill us, are trying to bring corruption. And all this sin, all these evil desires in our hearts are like a kind of spiritual gangrene that is in danger of turning into a fatal sepsis that will completely destroy us. And what Peter makes very clear is that participation in God sharing the life of God, having all this glory and holiness and immortality, is by definition completely incompatible with living according to the corruption of evil worldly desires. Yeah? They're completely opposed processes by definition. Light and darkness, life and death, working against each other. 
And so if we want to experience all that God has promised for us, we must escape the corruption of those evil desires. Not because God has arbitrarily said, this is the condition, by the way. For some random reason, I have chosen to make this the price of experiencing new life in me. No, it's simply by definition. It is actually impossible to experience the life of God and to know Jesus deeply and to have the vision of the glory of God that our hearts profoundly long for if they've been touched by the Spirit. It is actually impossible to experience those things if we are full of corruption and rottenness and decay. If we're like the whitewashed tombs, like Jesus described the Pharisees. So, as we begin this week, I want us to be thinking, this is all about knowing Christ more deeply. God wants me to change. God wants me to grow. He wants me to be transformed. He wants me to be shining with holiness and glory and immortality. And all of that comes through knowing Jesus more deeply and experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit more profoundly. God actually has very high expectations of every single person in this room. Very high expectations. Not because he trusts your willpower or how amazing you are on yourself. God has high expectations because he has put the imperishable seed of his word in your heart. Jesus Christ himself is living within you. God does not expect failure. He does not expect defeat. He does not expect a life lived in unrelieved slavery to sin. God is actually expecting, and he's looking for, and he is promising growth in grace. So, let's conclude with prayer, shall we? Father God, we lift up our hands to you, first of all, in thanksgiving, that you have already given us everything we need for a godly life in Christ. Lord, you have poured out every spiritual blessing possible in Jesus. And forgive us for our blindness in not realizing the riches that you hold out to us in him. Forgive us for crying out as orphans when we actually already possess the full inheritance. We possess the fullness of your power and your grace, and yet we confess that we do not live in the good of it nearly as we ought to be doing. Lord, help us all to know Jesus more deeply, to draw near to him, to see his face, to hear his voice, to sense his heart, to realize his life living within our own lives. And Lord, we need your Spirit to open our eyes to your power all around us, summoning us forward to a glorious inheritance, to unimaginable glory and transformation. We thank you for all of this, O Lord, and we ask that this week as we open up your word and we listen to your Spirit, that you would be speaking words of life into our hearts 
words that would change us. You know the things that all of us are struggling with, the common struggle with sin that we all share, the individual dark things that we may be hiding in our hearts and we feel discouraged and depressed because we don't know how to escape them. Lord, it is your will that we be sanctified. And we thank you that we are not left alone to do that, but we work in partnership with you, living under your abundant grace and peace, all of it given to us through Christ Jesus, your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.